The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Following the Diagnostic Pathway for Cold Agglutinin Disease. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash UHP 860. Downloadable additional resources are also available. Hello, I'm Dr. Catherine Broom from MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. Welcome to this educational activity on cold agglutinin disease. We have to start with a definition of autoimmune hemolytic anemia. It's an acquired hemolytic anemia that results from antibodies that are produced by the body against its own red blood cells. Patients have hemolysis resulting in anemia, reticulocytosis, a shortened erythrocyte lifespan, potentially fluctuating jaundice, and splenomegaly. The distinguishing feature of an autoimmune hemolytic anemia is a positive direct Coombs test. This test identifies antibodies on the surface of the red blood cell, and the type of antibody attached to the red cell is going to determine the mechanism of hemolysis. Warm, or IgG-mediated, autoantibody hemolytic anemia has antibodies of the IgG subtype that are most active at core body temperature. Cold autoantibody or IgM-mediated autoimmune hemolytic anemia has IgM autoantibodies that are most active at a temperature which is less than core body temperature. We can also have mixed, cold, and warm autoantibody types, and there can also be drug-induced autoimmune hemolytic anemias. Approximately 80 to 85 percent of autoimmune hemolytic anemias are mostly warm or mixed, and only about 15% of autoimmune hemolytic anemias are classified as cold or IgM-mediated. So let's look more closely at the underlying pathophysiology of cold agglutinin disease. Cold agglutinin disease is a rare form of autoimmune hemolytic anemia in which the immune system mistakenly targets and destroys red blood cells. In CAD, abnormal cells in the bone marrow produce immunoglobulin M antibodies called cold agglutinins that can attach to red blood cells. This causes the blood to agglutinate in cool conditions. People with CAD commonly experience agglutination in the peripheral circulation, such as the fingertips. As the blood enters the central circulation, it becomes warmer. The cold agglutinins detach from the red blood cells, and the agglutination resolves. But re-exposure to cool conditions reattaches the cold agglutinins to the red blood cells, inducing agglutination. The short-term presence of the antibodies on the red blood cells forms a complex that activates the classical complement pathway. The activation starts with C1, initiating a cascade of immune responses. Next, complement C3B binds to the red blood cells, marking them for destruction, which may occur in either of two different ways. The first way is that the marked red blood cells undergo phagocytosis in the liver, where monocyte macrophages cause extravascular hemolysis. This is the primary way red blood cells are lost in CAD. The second way is that C3B can also trigger terminal activation of the complement pathway through C5B, which directs its membrane attack complex against the marked cell, 
resulting in intravascular hemolysis and premature destruction of red blood cells in the circulation. Whichever path is taken, the complement system can destroy red blood cells as thoroughly as if they were bacterial invaders. When we think about what's happening with these patients, we have to think about really two aspects of cold agglutinin disease. We're thinking about the actual agglutination of the red blood cells, which is responsible for the circulatory symptoms we term acrocyanosis. As we saw in the animation, agglutination tends to occur in areas where temperature is below core body. So this is going to be the fingers, the toes, the tip of the nose, the ears. Agglutination of these red blood cells in the small vessels can cause a variety of symptoms from very mild and transient to severe. And in these pictures, you can see what it looks like in a test tube when the blood is exposed to a cooler than core body temperature. You can see the aggregates or the agglutination of those red blood cells. And this is related to the fact that IgM likes to stick together. And as it sticks together to form these pentamers, it drags the red blood cells with it and causes this phenomenon known as agglutination. If we think about the clinical characteristics or the clinical phenotype of this disorder, we're going to see that the vast majority of patients are going to have a hemolytic anemia with mild circulatory symptoms. There are a lesser percentage of patients who have hemolytic anemia with more severe grade two or three circulatory symptoms. And then a very small percentage of patients that have only circulatory symptoms, compensated hemolysis, and no anemia. In patients, symptoms of anemia are particularly pronounced. A vast majority of patients, 74% in this particular study, complain of fatigue or tiredness prior to their diagnosis. Almost half are going to complain about decreased stamina or weakness. And a full third or more are going to complain about shortness of breath. As you can see, a lesser percentage of patients, only 36% in this particular study, have symptoms of agglutination or acrocyanosis. So it's really the anemia that is producing many of the symptoms that our patients with cold agglutinin disease are reporting. The severity of anemia in cold agglutinin disease can vary. Some of these patients, 12% or so in this particular study by Dr. Berenson, had what we term compensated hemolysis, a hemoglobin that is normal, okay, greater than the lower limits of normal. Many of them may have evidence of hemolysis with a slight elevation in their LDH, as well as a slight elevation in their bilirubin, but they are compensating with an increase in reticulocytes that's able to not allow them to become anemic. About 24% of patients in this study had a mild anemia, a hemoglobin of around 10. 37% had a moderate anemia, hemoglobin between 8 and 10. And a full one-fourth, 27%, had quite a severe anemia 
with a hemoglobin of less than eight. As you can see, the more rapid the hemolysis, the higher the LDH, the higher the bilirubin, the less likely a patient is going to be able to compensate and the more severe the anemia that will develop. These patients also have an increased risk of developing additional complications outside of anemia and outside of agglutination. They have an increased risk of developing thromboembolism. If we look at venous events, they have a hazard ratio of 2.95. If we look at arterial events, they have a hazard ratio of 1.93. And if we look at cerebral events, they have a hazard ratio of 1.26. Our patients with cold agglutinin disease are prone to venous, arterial, and central nervous system thromboembolic events. What have we been telling our patients to do if they have cold agglutinin disease? Well, we've been advising them to avoid cold temperatures and air-conditioned rooms. We've been advising to avoid iced drinks and cold food, wear gloves, wear socks, wear hand warmers, wear scarves. We've been saying in the winter, keep extra blankets, keep warming aids in your car in case of emergency. The question is, are these enough? Are these really resulting? in improvements in patient symptoms. We now are gonna hear from a patient and the impact that cold agglutinin disease has had on their life. Um, my name is Duffy and I live uh, in Maryland. I am married to a physician who, we've been married for 40 years and I have three adult children and six grandchildren under the age of five. Um, I had a 35-year career as an executive in the shopping center retail real estate uh, industry, and I um, now am a writer. I've been writing since I have retired full-time from the shopping center industry, and uh, I am a caddy, which is commonly known. It's the word we call ourselves for those of us who have cold agglutin disease. So it was in November of uh, 2017. Uh, I was not feeling myself. Um, I'm pretty much an athlete. I work out every single day. And I was breathless walking up a flight of stairs. Um, I had heart palpitations that just were really, really strange to me and new to me. And um, I immediately went to see my doctor. And she ran a battery of tests and called me back that day and said, Duffy, something is seriously wrong. And um, I just couldn't believe it. I, I uh, didn't, I was tired, but I thought maybe I need, maybe it's my heart. What could it possibly be? And she called me later that day and said, I think you might have cancer. Maybe it's lymphoma or um, colon cancer. I saw at least four doctors, including my husband, who followed along with all the tests that I was having. Um, after the initial um, 
diagnosis, I ended, or not diagnosis, it was, I didn't know what was going on. I ended up having to see a hematologist um, and she ordered a battery of tests, including a bone marrow biopsy. And it took four months to figure out what was going on. And she basically said to my husband and I, we think that you have a very rare disease called cold agglutin disease, and you should just move to a warmer climate. And I was like, you've got to be kidding. You know, we're both working uh, men and women, and it's just not that easy. All of our children live here in, in uh, the city that we're in, and we couldn't believe that that was the only uh, alternative for us. The story of the struggle of all this while, you know, in between uh, finally being diagnosed and then ultimately getting the real drug, um, I had some real difficult times. Um, I went on a ski trip, for example, and um, we were in Utah and the elevation was 11,000 feet above sea level. I could barely breathe. I was gasping for air. That was one moment. And I just said, put me on a plane and send me home. Skiing is my passion, and I have virtually had to give it up because I was breathless. Then um, the other incident for me was our daughter was getting married, um, and we were planning uh, to go to Italy for her wedding. And I started to have dark urine, heart palpitations. I'd put my arm out and my husband would take my pulse and he'd say, you're really uh, moving at 90 uh, points. I don't even know what you say. I, my pulse was racing and it was the heart palpitations that I was feeling. Dark urine, heart palpitations, and fatigue. And I could barely sleep at night worrying if I was going to wake up the next day. So we went to Italy for our daughter's wedding, and I walked her down the aisle and tried to remain present at that moment, but it was really hard because I had uh, continuing acrocyanosis, as they call it, of my fingers and toes, and it was chilly in Italy, and I was trying to keep warm with scarves and sweaters and all, um, and that's when the dark urine started, and it was, I was really scared. Unfortunately, Duffy's experience is not unusual. Cold agglutin disease is misdiagnosed and underdiagnosed. A recent survey of U.S. patients found that 18% of them had more than a three-year delay between their initial symptoms and receiving a diagnosis. Specific therapies that target the complement pathway that are approved for the treatment of cold agglutinin disease are emerging into clinical practice. And these treatments differ from the treatments used for other forms of autoimmune hemolytic anemia. You can't get the right treatment without the right diagnosis. So let's learn how to efficiently and correctly recognize this rare disease, make the appropriate diagnosis, so that we can offer our patients the most efficacious forms of therapy. 
So what are some signs that need further investigation, right? Well, anemia and cold-induced circulatory symptoms should raise our suspicion. It should make us put cold agglutinin disease in our differential diagnosis. What are some of those signs or symptoms? Acrocyanosis of the fingers when exposed to the cold or levito reticularis, which can appear anywhere on the body and may persist even after that body part becomes warm. So the combination, anemia and cold-induced circulatory symptoms or other circulatory symptoms like levito reticularis need to clue us in. So in this section, we're going to walk through every step of the diagnostic algorithm. Before we start, we have to really emphasize the fact that you as a clinician and your laboratory staff have to know how to handle and process blood specimens from patients with suspected cold agglutinin disease. Improper handling of the blood samples is a problem often experienced by cold agglutinin disease patients and can lead to false negative test results delaying an important diagnosis for these patients. Many hospital personnel and laboratory personnel may also be unfamiliar with the procedures for proper blood draws as well as handling of blood during testing because cold agglutinin disease is so rare. So what we have to do is we have to first educate patients, but also educate ourselves. The tubes into which the blood is drawn must be kept warm, at least 37 degrees. The tube with the blood in it needs to be also kept warm until it is taken to the laboratory immediately And then we need to ask the laboratory to run the blood testing stat so that the blood doesn't sit out on a bench or a table somewhere, becoming cooler and allowing the cold agglutinin antibodies to precipitate out of the specimen and impact our results. So blood specimens that require warming for valid results include the CBC, in which we're going to measure our hemoglobin, right? It has to be pre-warmed, especially if we can see gross evidence of agglutination in the tube. If we're trying to evaluate a cold agglutinin titer, the thermal amplitude of that antibody, immunoglobulin quantification, an SPEP or immune fixation, We need to draw the blood into a pre-warmed vacuum tube and store that in a warming cabinet or a 37-degree water bath and keep it that way until the plasma has been removed from the clot, at which time the sample can then be handled at room temperature. And if we're doing flow cytometry, we also have to pre-warm, which may not be sufficient, And those cells might need to be washed at 37 or 38 degrees in order for us to obtain an appropriate result. As you can see, this really requires communication. It requires thinking about what am I sending the test for? If I have a suspicion that I'm evaluating for cold agglutinin disease, I really want to communicate 
with my phlebotomy staff, my laboratory staff, so that I can hopefully get the most accurate results for this particular patient. So the algorithm looks complicated, but I think it becomes much more understandable when we think about the pathophysiology of cold agglutinin disease and why each of these things is true, why we're ordering each of these tests. So if we look at a patient who has anemia, right, we're going to try to determine what is the cause of that anemia. We talked about how we're going to evaluate hemolysis, evidence of red cell breakdown, and compensatory red cell production. Our CBC is a good starting point. However, we have to remember that hemoglobin might be in the normal range in some of our cold agglutinin disease patients. So we need to evaluate hemolysis in another way. So we're going to look for evidence of hemoglobin metabolism, which is going to include looking at bilirubin. We're going to look at evidence of increased cell turnover, which is going to include looking at lactate dehydrogenase, which will be elevated compensation by the bone marrow, an increased reticulocyte count. Maybe there's urine, hemosiderin. And then remember that haptoglobin is going to bind free hemoglobin. And so while the haptoglobin may not be below normal, it may be in the low normal or below normal range in someone who has cold agglutinin disease. So a lot of these findings are nonspecific. They can also occur in patients with liver disease, other types of anemia, et cetera. But it is probably going to then be a clue to us to take that next step. Now I've got hemolysis. Do I think it's autoimmune? And in order to evaluate that, we're going to try to understand whether this is warm antibody type or cold antibody type or a mixed type. And the primary way that we are going to make that differentiation is through the direct antiglobulin test, right? So a polyspecific direct antiglobulin test is going to determine whether or not this is an autoimmune hemolytic anemia from other causes of anemia and other causes of bone marrow compensation with an increased reticulocyte count. The test is also called a Coombs test. The patient's red blood cells are washed and they are incubated with anti-human, anti-IgG, and anti-human, anti-complement antibodies, which is known as a Coombs reagent. If the test is positive, those antibodies will bind to the antibodies on the surface of the red cell, either the complement or the IgG, and it will cause the cells to agglutinate. If the test is positive, the patient likely has an autoimmune hemolytic anemia. If the test is negative, the patient probably does not have an autoimmune hemolytic anemia. We can then do some more specific evaluation with a monospecific DAT. And this is generally not a test that you have to order. This is generally the next step 
that will be performed by the laboratory to further investigate a positive DAT. It's more sensitive and simpler than the conventional test tube evaluation. So if the test is positive for complement on the surface of the red blood cells and negative for IgG, the patient may have cold agglutinin disease, although about 20% may also be weakly positive for IgG. If the test is negative for C3D, but positive for IgG, then the patient's going to have warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia. And making this distinction, understanding clearly whether the patient has warm, IgG-mediated, cold, IgM, and subsequently complement-mediated autoimmune hemolytic anemia is very important because the therapies are very different. If a blood smear is available, you can actually see agglutinated red blood cells. And this is going to automatically raise suspicion of cold agglutinin-mediated disease. Once we have that information, we're going to then process our sample appropriately and perform a cold agglutinin titer. A cold agglutinin titer is evaluated by serial dilution And remember that it's very important to keep the blood warmed until the serum is removed from the clot. If the cold agglutinin titer is greater than 1 to 64, the patient either has cold agglutinin disease or cold agglutinin syndrome, but we have to do some more testing in order to determine which. And in general, unless you are performing a research evaluation Determination of thermal amplitude is not necessary to make the diagnosis. We're going to try to assess, is this primary cold agglutinin disease or is this a secondary cold agglutinin syndrome? And what are the things that cold agglutinin syndrome is secondary to? So cold agglutinins can be elevated during acute febrile infection in overt malignancy clinical assessment, appropriate radiology examinations to rule out overt malignancy, appropriate laboratory evaluations to rule out infections. And these potentially treatable conditions, which would result in the resolution of cold agglutinin syndrome once treated, should be ruled out prior to diagnosing cold agglutinin disease. If patients have an elevated titer of cold agglutinins, but no infection or malignancy, then we generally are diagnosing them with primary cold agglutinin disease. In these patients, acute illness can trigger life-threatening hemolytic crises. Those infections can be minor or major. We never quite know how serious the hemolytic crisis is going to be. Patients without anemia before an acute infection or those with an overt malignancy are diagnosed with cold agglutinin syndrome. You want to look for those clonal B cells in cold agglutinin disease by doing a bone marrow biopsy to confirm. So we can either do IgMs, looking for a monoclonal IgM protein in a serum sample, and or we can do bone marrow biopsy 
which is going to demonstrate this low-grade clonal proliferation of B cells, which is the gold standard test. So we've completed our review of diagnostic testing for cold agglutinin disease, and we need to think about the criteria that the patient needs to meet in order for us to make this diagnosis. So we want to look for chronic hemolysis. We want to look for a positive, polyspecific direct antiglobulin test. We want to look for a monospecific direct antiglobulin test that's strongly positive for C3D. We want to look for a cold agglutinin titer that's greater than 1 to 64. And we want to look for no overt malignant disease. And remember that we're going to do either a serum IgM or a bone marrow biopsy. So in summary, cold agglutinin disease is a rare, debilitating form of autoimmune hemolytic anemia. It's associated not only with anemia and circulatory symptoms, but also with an increased risk of thrombotic events. As you heard from the patient, getting an accurate diagnosis is often difficult. Therefore, we want to remember that we need to keep cold agglutinin disease as part of a differential diagnosis of autoimmune hemolytic anemia. And we also need to remember the sequence of testing. Most important with regards to testing for cold agglutinin disease are those special precautions that need to be taken to keep the blood samples warm. This is imperative in order to obtain accurate results and provide our patients with a timely and accurate diagnosis. There are new targeted treatments that are available to treat cold agglutinin disease that alleviate symptoms in most patients. These treatments differ from those used for other forms of autoimmune hemolytic anemia, making a timely and accurate diagnosis of cold agglutinin disease imperative for our patients. A companion activity of this educational collection will discuss current treatment approaches to cold agglutinin disease for more information on future directions and where we are actually headed in the field of therapy for cold agglutinin disease. This activity is certified by PVI, Peer Review Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, the Cold Agglutinin Disease Foundation, Incorporated. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerreview.com forward slash UHP 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Sanofi.